Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Hosea is the first book in the section of our Bible called the Minor Prophets. These 12 books are not called minor um, because of their importance or because of the, the ministry of that prophet. They're simply called minor because of their length. They are shorter than the five books that ended up in the major prophets. However, at 14 chapters, Hosea is among the longest of the short prophets. There were two kinds of prophets. There were preaching prophets and writing prophets. The writing prophets primarily recorded what they saw, dreamed, or heard um, for either later reading in front of groups of people or for others um, to then read. Preaching prophets were those who stood up and preached directly themselves. So Hosea is a writing prophet, and he is the only writing prophet from the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. He operated during the time of Jeroboam II that we read about in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 29. That was a time of national prosperity and expansion of their territory. As often happens when things are going well, we tend to forget God. We think we're doing all right. We've been blessed. We we don't really need God right now. And Hosea is going to um, chastise them for that. They had retained an outward appearance of commitment to God, but they were really worshiping the Canaanite gods, the Baals. And they are relying on their own economic and political abilities to sustain them. Hosea saw this not only as idolatry, he saw it as adultery. Um, And he felt like this corrupted all the aspects of their life, their social interactions, their political and national life, and even their relationship to creation, to the land, the soil, and the animals. Hosea actually uses a a really harsh word for it. He's going to call it whoredom. The nation of Israel is whoring around with pagan gods instead of being faithful to their God. And Hosea is going to say that God cannot tolerate this. Like a husband whose wife continually cheats on him, eventually that's going to create anger and there are going to be consequences for it. Nevertheless, everything that happens, happens not to get rid of the unfaithful spouse, but rather to bring that spouse back into faithful commitment to the relationship. So everything that happens to Israel is really intended to try to help them be faithful to God. Both his warnings and the promises of restoration that come by God's grace are going to be themes that we're going to see throughout these 12 minor prophetic books. Remember that Israel was the northern kingdom. They're going to fall to the nation of Assyria, to the Assyrian Empire, in 722 BC. Judah will continue to survive into the 580s. But these words of Hosea's prophecies are going to be meaningful to both kingdoms. And right out of the gate in chapter 1, we see that we get the kings of both kingdoms at this time. 
For Hosea, like so many of the prophets, they're not going to see these as two nations. They were never supposed to be two nations. They were always supposed to be the one people of God. So Hosea feels absolutely comfortable prophesying to both. Since Hosea calls their disobedience whoredom, he compares their relationship with God to an unfaithful marriage. Scholars have long debated whether or not Hosea is telling a parable or whether this is his actual life. I lean toward siding with the scholars who believe this was his actual life because the prophets were known for their object lessons. It's almost as though they deliver performance art, but instead of um, for the sake of beauty or shock or notice, they're doing it in the in the realm of religion and religious faithfulness, but it is absolutely art. In chapter 1, we see Hosea marrying a woman named Gomer, and they have three children together. The first son, the first one is a son, and he is named Jezreel. That means God sows or God will sow. You may remember that there is a city named Jezreel that has played significantly in the history of the country. So when Hosea names his son this, it would have conjured all the other things that have happened in the city of Jezreel. Then they go on to have a daughter, and they name her Loruhama, which means not pitied. They have a third daughter that they name Loami, which means not my people. So over the course of seeing these three children be born, Hosea is saying, God is saying to us that you keep moving away from faithfulness. God can either sow blessing or judgment and his patience has run out with you. The divine father is gradually disowning his unfaithful children in the hopes that it will shock them into better behavior. So first he reminds them God sows. God's going to sow something. And then he says, I will no longer have pity on you, and you will not be my people. So it's a progression here. God is literally withdrawing the divine presence from Israel. If you remember at the burning bush episode with Moses in Exodus 3, the divine name given to Moses was I am. I am that I am. And now he is saying, I am not your I am. Nevertheless, hope remains. In verse 11, we see that the two kingdoms are once again gathered to be the one people that they are. In chapter 2, we now um, are going to be in a courtroom. It starts out with a warning. We see the opposite of the lows that we were given. The name Ami means my people. The prefix lo means not. So lo Ami was not my people. Um, In your Bible, in verse 1 of chapter 2, say to your brothers, Ami. Say to your sisters, Ruhema. That literally means say to your brothers, you are my people. Say to your daughters, I have compassion on you. And then he begins the argument. We have the lawsuit, the court case, and God lays out the case against the people. It's really presented as a divorce hearing. He begs the children to beg their mother to be a wife and mother. Free will means that if we act like something, We cannot be surprised when we are treated 
like that. So if the woman is not being faithful, if she's acting like she's not a wife and mother, then she shouldn't be surprised when those relationships are terminated and she isn't. Think about this in terms of the humiliation of a spouse being cheated on, particularly to a husband. The one who gets cheated on feels foolish. Like, how could they treat me that way? And how could I not have known they were treating me that way? And I can't not do something now that I know that's what they're doing. So I believe what we're seeing here is what's called anthropomorphization, where we attribute to God characteristics of human beings. So we see here a hurt-based anger. Um, God is hurt by our lack of faithfulness, and that hurt makes him angry. Um, the unfaithful wife, is she's not seduced. She's not kind of tricked or cajoled into it. Um, she actually hunts down these lovers, and she takes her husband's resources to buy things, to lavish on the lovers, that would add insult to injury. Nevertheless, we keep seeing hope sprinkled throughout here. In verse 16, there's an interesting exchange um, that could be translated a couple of different ways. It could be saying, no longer will you call the name Baal, like no longer will you call Baal your master. Um, or it could be translated, you will not call me master, for I am your husband. So that former thought, you will no longer call the name Baal, means I will eventually redeem you, and you will not answer to Baal. You will not let that one be your master. Or in the translation that I think I actually prefer, since you will not call me your husband, you will call Baal master. Like, why would you do that? I'm trying to be a husband to you. I'm trying to be good to you, to be nurturing, caring, protecting, for us to be life partners together. And yet you go and serve as a master-slave relationship, this other God. There. Um, so it's a really interesting picture of what is unfolding in the relationships. In chapter 3, chapter 3 is a brief chapter. It may be the retelling of their marriage, or, or it may actually be the renewal of marriage vows. So some see this kind of as a flashback, which provides more foundation to what is actually happening. Others believe that the children went and begged their mother to be faithful, and she has come back, and so they've given it another try. And so this is the renewal of their vows together. It mentions raisin cakes in chapter 3. Raisin cakes were often baked as offerings for the Baals, the Canaanite gods. There's a discussion of the bride price that happens here in verse 2. Gomer left Hosea for a lover, and it may be that she ended up as a prostitute. She's been sold into slavery and is functioning as a prostitute. Or she may have gone after her lover, and her lover has now abandoned her, and she has no other way of providing for herself except prostitution. So the bride price here may be that Hosea is having to purchase her back from slavery, or this might be the price that a man paid to be with a prostitute. I think he's buying her back out of slavery, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. Um, this could also be God saying, I have everything 
you're trying to find. I have everything you're trying to earn. You could have found it here. Why go looking for it anywhere else? We do see that there is a time of privation. When a spouse did agree to take, well, we have to say husband, because in the ancient world, the woman had no ability to divorce her husband. She could only be divorced. So if the husband agreed to take the unfaithful wife back, there usually was a time of privation. She would not go in and sleep with him for a period of time. This was to establish that she was not pregnant with her lover's child so that her faithful husband would not have to raise the lover's child. So we see that Israel's time of probation was their exile. Um, They went away for that. And it talks about no king, no prince. There's no national leadership. There's no ability for them to lead themselves. They are a captive people ruled over by others. No sacrifice or pillar says they have no religious leadership. They're not able to fully um, embrace their religious rituals. And no ephod or teraphim, um, no prophetic or supernatural guidance has been happening either. So now we get to the discussion of what Homer, what Hosea pays to, to purchase Gomer back. The price of a slave, according to Exodus 21, was 30 shekels of silver. We see Hosea paying 15 shekels of silver and an omer of barley. An omer of barley was 10 bushels. He probably doesn't have 30 pieces of silver. So he makes up the other half of what he needs to buy Gomer back in barley. If 30 pieces of silver sounds familiar to you, that is the price that Judas was given to betray Jesus. So Jesus was betrayed for the price of buying a slave. Um, Okay, so when we go back to Homer and um, to Hosea and Gomer, I keep wanting to run those two names together. Not only has Gomer cost Hosea grief and heartache and humiliation, but now he's having to spend his own precious resources to redeem her. That, too, is a picture of what we do as unfaithful people to God. Not only do we cause God grief and heartache and humiliation, but God is willing to spend His own resources to come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, to suffer and die, to redeem us from our disobedience and sin. All right. Uh, In chapter 4, we go back to the divorce proceeding. There's a new indictment laid out. This may be the second time that Gomer has been unfaithful. So the first time back in chapter 2, the children beg her to come back. She seems to or she's convinced by the argument. Now, once again, we're talking about divorce. The word loyalty in verse 1 is often translated steadfast love. Um, In verses 4 and 5, There's no one to accuse them. There's no one who can correct them because they're all so corrupted. People can't lead where they don't know how to go. We cannot have corrupt leaders. It works in our society too, but we cannot have corrupt leaders in our churches. We need pastors and evangelists and district superintendents and bishops who are faithful, who are God followers, but we also need it in our lay leadership. We need mature disciples, firmly committed to God and mature in their walk um, because we have to be able to help one another stay on the right path. The mother here is Israel, 
and the people are her children. They're going to lose their nation and be scattered like orphans because of their disobedience. In verse 6, we also see that they are rejecting knowledge. The knowledge is available. They just don't see it as valuable, and so they ignore it. But we know that sin will bring consequences. Verses 7 through 10 affirm this. And this is not the first time we've heard this. Way back when God made a covenant with the Hebrew people, He said, If you obey me, you'll find yourself blessed. If you disobey me, you'll find yourself on the wrong end of suffering. Okay. In verse 12, we talk about pieces of wood. Idols were often carved from wood. And sometimes um, they would worship those idols in forests, but sometimes they also carved the faces of the idols right onto the trees. Um, okay, This comes in a larger discussion of some pagan worship practices that we can skim over if we don't catch it. Um, the religious festivals to idols, particularly to the Canaanite gods, were often raucous parties where people got drunk and then they got very sexual there. It talks about um, divining rods or staffs. There were several different ways to engage in divination with the use of sticks. One of those was um, you would count spans. So the length of a stick, you would measure it off, or you would pull a stick out of a whole bunch, like you have a whole bunch of toothpicks and you keep pulling them. And so you would do it much in the same way that we used to pull the petals off flowers. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. You would measure the spans, the length down the stick, or you would pull the sticks out of a bucket with this one is yes or no, yes, no. And whatever the final answer you're on, that was the answer you were getting. You could also stand a piece of wood straight up holding the top of it with your hand, you say an incantation, and then you remove your hand in whatever direction the piece of wood falls, that gives you an answer. A third way is for um, there to be two sticks. One is marked with God bids, the other one with God forbids, and you draw a stick, and whichever stick you drew was either yes or no answer that you were looking for. Um, Here, Hosea is saying, He talks about a spirit of whoredom. Their general disposition has come inclined to idolatry. And when we do that, when we push on and engage in sin, we will deafen ourselves to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And we can actually become addicted, like we want to engage in those practices. In verses 15 through 19, Judah is warned not to do what Israel is doing, and yet that's exactly what Israel does. Um, You cannot mix worship of God and the worship of idols. We have to choose. Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That was what Joshua put before them. But we can't keep running after idols and expecting God that we can claim God's promises and that he will do it. Like that's that's just not how that works. Okay, in verses seventeen through nineteen, it uses the word Ephraim. Um, Ephraim was the most prominent tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel, in the same way that Judah is the more prominent tribe in that country. Remember, ten tribes went with Israel, and so another name for Israel is Ephraim because they're the major tribe. 
The other country, the southern kingdom, is Judah. It's actually made up of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, but we call it Judah because Judah is the most prominent. Moving into chapter 5, we see that there is judgment on both sides of the Jordan. Mizpah is on the east and Tabor is on the west, and there were military strongholds on each side so that people could be ensnared. They could be completely covered um, by being seen of what was going on. Chapter 5, verse 8 through chapter 7, verse 16 is another section, another segment of the book of Hosea. Hosea is going to condemn the substitution of nationalism for God. We cannot think that countries are the equivalent of religious communities. Even here, Hosea is saying, you think that God has to bless everything that our country does, and God does not. And you cannot think that because we've been successful as a nation, because we are experiencing prosperity and expanding our territory, that that necessarily God is happy with our faithfulness. They're depending on their own wisdom. They're relying on other nations and their alliances with them instead of relying solely on God. And they're finding that the the governments, both of cities and of their nation, is corrupt. This is not their first warning. They have rejected all other calls to repentance. And any attempt that they have made to repent and be faithful has been feeble and has only been short-lived. God requires steadfast love, not a brief affair. So it kind of turns the tables. Instead of me being your husband and you cheating with the other gods, instead, you are married to the other gods, and we only have a brief affair or fling with one another. I want you to be married to me. And so God demands that we know and understand God's very nature and stop behaving in this way. And without repentance and obedience, the fate is going to be punishment. I'm going to pause here, make a second podcast for um, this book of Hosea. I hope you'll pick up as we start again with chapter 6.